think we're going to look at John 14, probably is what we'll start with. And um, it is a joy to be here. I know uh, uh, my brother Dave is, um, I, as you mentioned, I know he's been here numerous times, and he's he's always spoken well of his time here. And uh, so it is. A, it's not only a joy for me to be here, but also to have my son Elijah with me this weekend. He's here with me here on the front row, Elijah. He's 17, and uh, we have uh, two adult sons who have left the nest, and then uh, my wife is back home with our daughter, and so I have the privilege of having our, our youngest son with me this weekend. Um, yeah, so thinking about just the, the connection really through Pastor Tucker and all those different things through the years, um, he, uh, I, I'd mentioned last night at the burn how uh, Pastor Jerry Dunham, who's now with the Lord, he pastored the Open Bible Church years ago here in town, back in the 80s. Um, he was a childhood pastor of mine, and uh, but the very first pastor I ever had was Pastor Tucker, and I was, I was only five when we left Calvary Temple in Duluth, Minnesota to come to Iowa, and, um, and I was just telling someone the other day about um, a couple of the memories that I have of being at Pastor Tucker's church. So I'm thankful for my background and my heritage of, of my dad being a Pentecostal minister. There's just a couple of memories that I have that are very distinct. I remember standing on the back row. Maybe I shouldn't have been standing on the pew, but I was standing. I was like three or four. And worship, the music kind of subsided for a moment. And my mom, I'm standing next to my mom, and she's got her hands raised, and she says, oh, my children, my children, don't you know how much I love you? And I'm thinking, yeah, mom, we, we, you're a good mom. We know that you love us. Of course, you're a good mom. We know that you love us. And it took me a while to realize what prophecy and you know, words of knowledge and everything was in the church. But the other thing I remember is apparently I hadn't been feeling well, and Pastor uh, Tucker at the end of the service um, wanted to pray for people who had needs. And so, again, I'm probably like three years old, and, and my mom carries me in her arms up front to, re, to receive healing prayer with the laying on of hands. And, and you know, Pastor Tucker was not a small guy, and I'm only three, and I just remember this massive hand. Even as my son is shrinking down, that's how I felt. Coming down on me, just the intimidation of that. And so I, you know, ministering in a Pentecostal style with laying on of hands, I, I try to remember how that can feel to people um, and how awkward that can be. Uh, but then again, I have been known to have many awkward moments in ministry style. So there's freedom here this morning. Um, there's freedom in God's presence, freedom in His love, freedom in Christ. And freedom for you to not like me and never invite me back. How's that for freedom? That's just freedom. That's a good thing. Um, seriously, um, you don't have to. You don't have to like me or my style or how I do things. There's just freedom. Um, let's value and honor the Word of God. Um, let's receive what He has for us from His Word. But you don't have to care for my style or anything like that. Um, but. Um, how many know the verse out of Proverbs 4.23? It says, above all else, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life. And the issues of life flow from the heart. Well, that is a very foundational passage. Um, and some of these other verses we're going to look at here in a moment. I, I shared this briefly last night, but just how it's, it has struck me over the last almost two years, especially with the beginning of the pandemic, 
2020, how I think we have a tendency to look at Scripture and view it through one singular lens of our limited perspective as Americans in our American context in our 21st century context. And so we, you can take any verse, but let's take a verse that is repeated so much throughout Scripture, and especially in the Psalms. For the Lord is good, and His love endures forever. How many know that's true? The Lord is good, and His love endures forever. Hallelujah! And that's written throughout a lot of different portions of Scripture, but definitely it's woven in through a whole lot of Psalms. And it has struck me that, okay, the Old Testament, Psalms written thousands of years ago, and you think about every person that has come along since then. You think about every crisis, every tragedy that's happened on the planet. Every believer who's gone through a devastating loss. Every follower of Christ who has suffered persecution. Every believer that there was for the first 1,500 years of the church before the Reformation. And I'm, I'm just going to honestly confess, I think we have a tendency as Protestants to just think of church history as the last 500 years, rather than going church history is like the last 2,000 years. And all the believers who have walked the earth and the ones that are right now suffering great persecution around the planet, that passage was true, is true, and always will be true. For the Lord is good and His love endures forever. That was true when you were a young child. That was true when you suffered the loss of a parent. Maybe if you went through a divorce, when you lost a job. When you felt God's presence and when you didn't feel God's presence. That was just simply true. And I don't know what 2022 is going to bring us. Probably lots more surprises. It's been an interesting season that we've been living in. I don't know what's going to happen. You might be looking at me like, bummer, huh? I was hoping we'd have a prophet here this morning that could tell us exactly what's going to happen. Well, I tell you what. I will tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to prophesy to you. God is going to prove himself faithful over and over and over again. Look, I, I'm, I can't tell you... <clears throat> what world powers are going to do. I can't tell you what the economy is going to do or what the White House is going to do. I can't tell you uh, how the nations are going to rage, but I will tell you that God has established His King upon His throne and Jesus Christ is Lord and He reigns forever. And even though the circumstances are in flux and things change and there's, we're in a season of, of incredible global change, the fact is God is good and His love endures forever. That is immutable. That never changes. It was true when I was single. It was true when I had hair. It's true now that almost all my kids, yeah, my daughter just mentioned the other day, she said, you know what's weird? Next, Christmas of next year will be the last Christmas where all of your kids won't be adults. Like, oh, that is so weird to phrase it that way. That's just strange. Every season in our lives, the Word of God remains the same. 
And I don't want to just have a narrow view of Scripture. I want to see it in the fullness of its historical context, in the global context for the global church, and then also to see it through the faithful, immutable, amazing, unchanging love and perfection of God. That if His Word was true back here when things were going good, His Word is still true here when things aren't so good. He's just who He is, and He's not changing. So, so I think the, that passage of uh, Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. Man, that is huge. You know what? One of the amazing things to me about that passage, it does not say, above all else, make sure your pastor guards your heart. And if your heart's not taken care of, man, it's your pastor's fault. You just don't have a good enough pastor because he's not taking care of your heart. No. It says you take care of your own heart. Nobody else can do that for me. Look. Thank God for the body of Christ. Thank God for pastors and leaders. And they can provide some, some accountability, encouragement, strength, and comfort. But at the end of the day, you and I are responsible for our own hearts. Because when you lay your head down on your pillow at your bed at night, your pastor can't crawl inside your head and think for you. That'd be kind of bizarre anyways. <laughs> but it's you and your mind and your heart before the Lord. So Paul says things to the Corinthians like, take every thought captive of the obedience of Christ. There's these passages that speak to us of, of our responsibility to steward our own hearts. And so I want to look at just a few verses this morning that to me are very challenging. But when you get on the other side of the challenge, they're also very encouraging. So um, actually, uh, let's go to John 13 and then, we're, then we'll pop back over to 14. Um, a little bit of this, this portion here in John 13, I shared with, I still don't know the group of people I met with yesterday afternoon. It was at the same place where the burn was, but I, I don't know, group of, I think, leaders. Um, whoever they were, they were the one o'clock group um, that I met with in a small room. So... Um, I shared a little bit of this with them. It's just some things that the Lord had been highlighting to my heart. Um, that's really challenging to me. And I told them, I said, I, I don't really care for sharing this. I, 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 per, I would prefer um, chocolate over broccoli, brownies over broccoli. That's just my personal preference. Um, but how many know that we need a healthy, balanced diet and you need to eat your veggies? And, um, and so there's some passages that are like that that are not, um, they're not dripping with chocolate fudge sauce or whatever, you know? They're just like, it's just broccoli. But you gotta, you got to eat these passages anyways. you got to eat the Word. Okay, so um, let's go to uh, John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of, the wor out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. It goes on in this passage to essentially say that Jesus, who had already 
humbled himself to an incredible degree because he's God and he comes off of his throne, becomes a little embryo in Mary, which is just bizarre in and of itself as we come into the Advent season and we're about to celebrate Christmas, to think about the incarnation, the fact that God in his incredible meekness and humility becomes a tiny little embryo in Mary, is gestating in there. She gives birth, not in the most luxurious place, okay? And then God, the sovereign God of the universe, needs his diapers changed. That's just bizarre. That's weird. He needs to be fed. He needs to be taken care of. He embraces the vulnerability and the fragility, the, the, the weakness, not the sinfulness, but the weakness and the vulnerability of humankind. And it says in Philippians 2 that not only did he humble himself, but he took on the form of a slave. A lot of translations say servant. That's just a nice way to say it, but really the word is slave. He had already humbled himself to such a degree, and now in this context, these men that he had been leading, that he called, that he chose, that he poured his life into for three years, and they're, he, they're, they're following him everywhere they go. They're eating, they're celebrating, they're, they're, they're fasting together, they're celebrating and going to weddings together, and they're ministering together. He trained them in ministry, cast out demons, raised the, raised the dead. Uh, set the captives free and, and all these amazing signs and wonders and miracles. And what happens? They are about to all abandon him. And specifically, Judas is going to betray him. And what is Jesus' response to this incredible betrayal that's about to hit? Because the context is exactly where Jesus knows suddenly the devil prompts Judas to betray him. And what is Jesus' response? I'm even going to get lower and I'm going to serve to a greater degree. I've already humbled myself, but now I'm going to get even lower and I'm going to take off my outer garment and I'm going to wash their feet like a slave would. That to me is challenging and incredible. That on the precipice of, of the greatest betrayal that he would face, all he does is get lower and serve in humility and love. That's amazing. I expounded on that a lot more yesterday with the group, um, but I want us to jump over to John 14 real quick. And let's go over to, if you go to verse 25, this amazing passage that Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, who he is and his role, what he will be doing, and I love that. And if I read that, I'm going to get way distracted because I love teaching on this, on um, the Holy Spirit. But let's go to verse 27, John 14, 27. Jesus says this, Peace I leave with you, and my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. 
Peace I give you, peace I leave with you. I don't know, he says it two different ways. It's like he's really driving the point home. I am giving you peace. How many love that? Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Whoo! I'm giving you peace. That's amazing. I love that. Jesus imparting peace to us. Yes, I love peace. Now look what he says next here. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Wait, wait, wait a second, Jesus. Come on, this is, this is not how it works. You're God. You're God. You don't let my heart be troubled. Now, if we're honest, probably a lot of us have prayed this. Oh, God, where's my peace? God, oh, my heart. It's troubled. God, what's going on? Give me some peace. Am I right? Anybody been there? God, my heart is troubled. I'm overwhelmed. I'm frustrated. I don't have any peace. God, where are you at? What's going on? Come on. And yet we know it says in Proverbs 4.23, above all else, you guard your heart. I used to say that to our kids sometimes when they were little. I'm like, hey, who's responsible for your heart? And we're talking like three years old, four years old. Who's responsible for your heart? And, and my, you know, my kids being children of ministers, you know, they, they're, I think they're automatically got it in their brain that Jesus is always the right answer, you know? It's like, oh, my dad's a minister. Okay, Jesus, it must be, you know? What's four times four? Jesus! Well, you could be anything. And so it's like, who's responsible for your heart? Jesus. No, that Jesus is not responsible for your heart. Mommy and daddy, no, we're not. You are responsible. We love you, and God really loves you, but you alone are responsible for your response. You are responsible for your heart. And so we know he says that in Proverbs 4.23. And here Jesus is saying, you don't let your heart be troubled. And I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> Have you watched the news lately? Now, God, that sounds really nice to put that in Scripture. Don't let your heart be troubled. But I don't know if you've been paying attention to what's been going on in the world. 2020, did you not have this in mind when you wrote this? Because I can't imagine that you had 2020 in mind when you wrote this passage in the Scripture. Don't let your heart be troubled. In your sovereign wisdom, in your foreknowledge, did you not know about George Floyd, about riots, about pandemic, about coronavirus, about not having enough toilet paper? Did you not know about the election? Because hearing from some prophets, it would seem as if you didn't know who was going to win. And in the midst of all that, you say, don't you let your heart be troubled. But you're God, you're sovereign, you're almighty, you're all-powerful, and you're telling me not to let my heart be troubled. Yep. God is sovereign, and he is almighty, he is all-powerful, but he delegates incredible power and responsibility to us. But here's what I love about this, is that he doesn't just say, hey, you're on your own. He's a good, loving father who walks alongside of us and he sends his Holy Spirit to take up residence within us. And specifically in this passage, Jesus says, 
My peace I give you, my peace I leave with you. Now you don't let your heart be troubled. So what's amazing to me about that is this is how I read it. Is essentially what Jesus is saying, I've already done my part. I've given you everything that you need. Let me ask you this. How many of you have ever felt to any degree in your mind, your heart, your emotions, your spirit, your big toe, any, any portion of your being, you have felt the peace of God? Anybody? Okay. How many know, how many have ever experienced after feeling the peace of God, feeling a whole lot of turmoil and confusion and frustration? Anybody? Okay. So we're all on the same page here. It's like, okay, I am a Christian. I have experienced peace. I've experienced great anxiety and frustration, right? But this is what I understand the Lord is saying this. Is he says, I've already given it to you. It's just simply up to you to steward. The beautiful thing is you steward your own heart, but the peace I've given you, it's for you to keep forever. I think that's part of what he means when he says, I'm not giving to you like the world does. A cheap imitation that's flimsy and just falls apart and goes away. I'm not giving you something temporarily just to tease you. I am giving you life. I am the Prince of Peace, and I put my spirit to live inside of you. And I'm not taking back my peace. A few weeks ago, I felt like the Lord impressed something on my heart that I was, I was just journeying with the Lord about my own heart, and, and I felt like He gave me some clarity in the way that He phrased it. It was something like this, that He said, there's times where I will have an experience with God where He speaks a truth to me, and then it comes with some really good feelings. It's like, yeah, God spoke this truth to me. Well, that feels really good. Now I got that. Now I see it. And then later on, those feelings are gone. And now what I want to do in my humanity is I want to recover those feelings. I want those feelings back because that felt really good. And what the Lord told me was, Christopher, you don't need to pursue the feelings. Just recover the truth that you lost perspective on, and those feelings will come. So I don't have to flit about try, chasing a feeling. I get to be established in truth, and when I simply come back into truth, it's not a guarantee those feelings, exact feelings, will necessarily be there the way they were before, but most likely I will get to live in a, that measure of peace that I had previously. Because the real deal wasn't what I felt. The real deal was the truth that he spoke to me. It's truth that sets us free. Not feelings. But feelings get to follow the truth. And so Jesus comes and he says, I'm imparting peace to you. I'm not giving you as the world gives. I am releasing peace into your life. And now that I've empowered you to do that, I'm never taking that peace back. And it's available to you at any time. 
this making sense? So, um, let's go over to another verse here in 2 Corinthians. Do you love the Word of God? I love the, I love the Word of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This has been a verse I've, that really stood out to me a few years back, and I've shared it a little bit in the context of from the beginning of 2020 and uh, so here's Paul writing to the Corinthians. We'll start with verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overwhelmed in a wealth, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I'm reading that one day, and I'm like, Paul, wait, wait a second. You are combining terms that I don't think should ever go together. Severe test of affliction and joy? What? You can't be serious. Like, how do these go together? Like, I understand. I go through a trial, and I endure, and then sometime later when I get on the other side of it and my circumstances have changed and I've learned my lesson then I finally go whoo hallelujah praise God thank you God thank you and now I can have some joy that's not bad that's a whole lot better than backsliding and getting bitter at God okay wouldn't you agree it's a whole lot better that's not a bad response but in this context Paul's telling us that wasn't there they were not waiting for someday for their circumstances to change, for them to get out of this test of affliction to have joy. It, they were saying, he's saying right in the test of their extreme affliction, it, and he doesn't even say, they tasted a little bit of momentary joy for a second. It says they overflowed with joy. I'm like, What? Because I feel like I've known joy and I've known trials, but I never know joy in the midst of trials. But Paul's saying that the Macedonian churches, this was their experience. He's not denying the reality that it was a real affliction, real test, real pain that they went through, but he's saying there was a greater reality in the midst of it. There was real heavenly Holy Ghost joy. And then he says this, is he says, out of their extreme poverty welled up rich generosity. I'm like, Paul, how can you combine these things? Like, I know what it's like at times to have lack and struggle financially and go, I want to give. I want to have a generous heart. Oh, pastor, I, I'm looking forward to one day tithing. Because, boy, one day that's going to be a real blessing when I can do that. When that day comes, you know, I'll be the first to give. Oh, I'd sure love to give to missions, you know, but I don't have the money because I'm struggling financially. But, boy, one day when my ship comes in, one day when my circumstances change, boy, then I'm just I'm going to be Mr. Generosity. But, of course, I can't be right now because I'm a victim of my circumstances and there's no way that I could be giving now. 
Most of us use, wouldn't use that language, per se, but if we're going to be honest, that's where some of us have lived at times. And I think, my circumstances are difficult, so there's no reason. I mean, I know the Bible talks about the joy of the Lord, and the joy of the Lord is my strength, and all these different things, and that's really great, and that's nice. Sing your happy, charismatic choruses, but as for me, I live in the real world, and I'm dealing with trials, and I don't know the how I can overcome. But one day, when my circumstances change and God just smacks the devil in the face because he's sovereign, he's almighty, then I can get on the other side and maybe I can have some joy. And I would love to be generous and I want to be generous, but there's no way I can be generous right now because I'm dealing with poverty and I have limited income and I have lack and there's no way that I can really be generous. But one day, if things change, Here's what I've had to realize. Is true change doesn't come from my external circumstances. True change comes from the internal reality of who Christ is on the inside of me. So I cannot wait for my circumstances to change in order to embrace joy. And I cannot wait for my circumstances to change to be generous. Look, this is not a message on giving. This is really a message on the goodness of God and how he empowers us to steward our own heart. And I'm just telling you, I've, I read this passage and I'm like, oh my goodness, Paul, you're combining concepts that I've always thought of as polar opposites. I mean, either you're in poverty or you're generous, but you can't be both at the same time. Maybe what Paul was getting at was a way to get out of poverty is becoming generous in the midst of your poverty. Maybe Paul, instead of saying, well, either you're afflicted and you're going through a trial or you could be joyful or you have joy over here, maybe he's saying that the way to get out of your trial or see your trial accurately, see your circumstances the right way, is to embrace joy in the midst of it, which does not, any of this, none of this stuff comes natural to our human flesh, our natural understanding. Just making sense? And so on one hand, I find it extremely challenging. I'm like, God, look, you ever, look, if when you read the Bible, if you never get frustrated, I'm going to tell you, you're not reading it right. If your entire time of reading scriptures, la, 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 oh, it's so nice, it's so sweet, this is God's word, I love you, and you never get frustrated, you're not reading it right. Because the reality of his word will smack you lovingly, but smack you right between the eyes with a hard, cold dose of reality of what God has called us to. And the beautiful thing is what he does is the Holy Spirit reaches into our hearts to rip out our excuses. But then he empowers us. And he says, I've given you peace. And nothing and nobody can take it away. So let's look at one more verse real quick before we go back to John. Go over to uh, Philippians chapter 4. Now, it's, again, we are talking earlier about 
having a good context for how we read the Word of God in a historical context. So when you read a book like, you read an epistle like Philippians, only four chapters, keep in mind that the theme of, the major theme of the book of Philippians is joy, and the context is Paul was writing it from prison. Just let that sink in for a moment, okay? The theme, the major theme of Philippians is joy. It's meant, some form of joy is written in there like, I think it's like 20 sometimes in four chapters. And he's writing it from prison. Okay? So, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord when? Does that include 2020, 2021, and whatever's going to come our way in 2022? Does Paul make an exception based on whoever might be in the White House? Okay. Look, stick firmly to your political convictions, okay? Hold fast to that. Pray for our nation. Pray for our government and our governmental leaders. Maybe even pray that some of them be removed. But pray. But even with all that intercession, it doesn't override what Paul says right here. Rejoice in the Lord always. Gah. Just the simplicity of that. He says always. But here's what's amazing about it. Is he says rejoice. The idea of the word rejoice is recover your joy. He doesn't say beg God and cry out to God that he touches you with joy. Now look, I've been touched with joy and I've been in lots of meetings where I've seen people touch with joy and I love it. So is joy, is the joy of the Lord, is the peace of God. And I'm going to use these somewhat interchangeably, although they're not the identical thing. Peace and joy. Are those things a manifestation? Is it a gift from God? Is it a fruit of the Spirit or is it a personal choice? Yep. It's all the above. But I, I have learned this, is that God can come upon us and he can impart us, impart peace to us, and he can give us, give us an experience with his joy, which is awesome and I love it. But when the manifestation is done, I still have the responsibility in his grace to steward my heart. Because what he gives to us, he's not giving us to just take away. He's a good father, and whatever he gives to you, he gives it to you to keep. So, real quick, let's look at this, Philippians 4. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and Paul feels the need to drive it home again. And again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness, a lot of versions say gentleness, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. He's right here. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Come on, Paul. You are using this incredible language like rejoice always and don't be anxious about anything. That's pretty exclusive language. Don't be, don't be anxious about anything. But, but in everything... Make it a contrast here. By prayer, 
Oh, yeah, see, there he is, man. It's really bad, and I got to pray. I got to cry out to God. God, help me. I don't know what's going on. God, this is so hard. Yes, prayer, that's the key. We just need to get desperate and cry out to God. And Hey, there's a place for that. But this is what he says next. And supplication with what? Thanksgiving. I think it is beautiful and it's powerful that he adds that portion in there. Because we need intercession. We need intercessors. We need to be a prophetic intercessory people. But if underpinning all of that you don't have thanksgiving, then what happens is you inadvertently get problem-focused. And your intercession can turn into depression. That is not the goal of God. So we need to pray. Prayer is good. Intercession is good. But if underpinning it all is not a revelation of the goodness of God and that, man, I have everything to be thankful for, even though, yes, there are things in my circumstances that are not good and that I believe God is in the process of changing, but even more than that, God is in the process of changing me before my circumstances change. He wants to change me. The underpinning it all is, God, you are good. You are faithful. Lord, I thank you for the cross. (laughs) No matter what happens in my life, the greatest crisis I ever had was that I was guilty before a holy God and you took care of that at the cross. Thank you, Jesus. Today is a good day. Any day not in hell is a good day. Thank you, Jesus. You are good. By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. So it's with the scripture, we don't just have Jesus going, hey, I gave you peace. Now, good luck. We don't have that. We have the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul to break this process down for us. And this is what he says. With thanksgiving, letting your requests be made known to God. Again, I think it's a safeguard against complaining. Okay? He says, let your requests be made known, but with thanksgiving. Not, oh God, my spouse is such a jerk. Just change God. Do a miracle in them. In, in her life, in his life, do a miracle. You're such a jerk. No, it's, God, thank you for my spouse. Thank you for my blessed wife. Thank you for my amazing husband. Thank you. And even if you got to pull on Romans 4, where Paul says, call those things that are not as though they were, and you just say that they're an amazing spouse, okay? You just thank them for who they are. Thank Him for the blessing that they are. And this is where He gets into verse 7. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Yes, pray. But do it with thanksgiving. And as we do that, the peace of God that Jesus imparts to us guards and protects our minds and our hearts. And we won't get into it, but right after that, then Paul goes on to tell us how we should think, what we should think about. Be careful of what you set your mind on. You see, the Word of God is very, very practical. So, I think pretty much everyone in this room, we said... We know what it's like. We've experienced peace. 
But we also know that after experiencing that peace, we've had times where we felt overwhelmed, we felt anxious, we felt frustrated. We get to recover that peace, but not because we are orphans begging for God to do something He's reluctant to do. We get to recover that peace by just simply realigning ourselves with the truth of who He is and living in the fullness of what He's already made available to us. He's already given you peace. Now, one last thing from John 13. John 13, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. So John 13, 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands. I think most likely that portion of Scripture is something that's distinctly unique to Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, Okay, that God gave all things into his hands. I don't know that we can necessarily make an application to for ourselves from that portion necessarily. But what comes next, I think, is very applicable to us. So it says, Jesus, knowing that. So these are a few things that he knew. Jesus, knowing that he had come from God and was going back to God. Jesus dealt with, Jesus responded to the betrayal of his friends, and specifically Judas, but he, he responded to the betrayal of the people who he had partnered with in ministry, who he poured into, who he trained. He responded to this betrayal by knowing who he was. He came from the Father, and he's going back to the Father. Now, you and I could read that and go, well, that's great for Jesus. I mean, he knows who he is. He's the Son of God. He came from God. He's going back to God. That's great. But here's the thing. You and I, because of the Son of God, you and I are sons of God. And we came from the Father. We were chosen in eternity past by the Father before the creation of the world. We were chosen in Christ. This is what it says. That's what Paul says in, in Ephesians 1. We were chosen by the Father before the creation of the world. We came from God. And now we will be going back to God. We were born from up above. And when all this is over, and Paul says this light and momentary affliction. That's what Paul tells the Corinthians. And he's speaking of having his back beaten with rods, being left for dead, shipwrecked, stoned, cast off, naked, without food, being rejected by his fellow Jews, and being misunderstood at times by his fellow Christians. And he calls it our light and momentary afflictions. See, I tend to think if they're only allowing one, one portion of, 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 of toilet paper to be purchased at Walmart, that's, that's real suffering. But Paul was left for dead, okay? And he's writing these letters from prison. 
I doubt they had much toilet paper for Paul in prison. And he says these light and momentary. What's the point there? Paul, number one, he calls them light. I don't know how he does that, okay? And he calls them momentary. I think the essence of what he's talking about is Paul lived in light of eternity. That the pain that we suffer through, yes, it's real, but man, in comparison to the next 90 trillion years and beyond that we will live in eternity, this little temporary suffering is nothing compared to that. And not just that we're going to live in eternity for 90 trillion years and beyond, but the glory that we'll see. And I don't think there's a one of us that's going to stand before his throne and say, oh God, it was too hard for me. It was too difficult. I think when we see the glory of who he is, we're going to say, oh God, I wish I would have trusted more. I wish I would have given more. I wish I would have rejoiced more if I would have only known how great, how glorious you are, how you have loved me always with a perfect love. I would have gave so much more. Jesus, I thank you that you are the Prince of Peace. And so, Lord, I just thank you that you included the Macedonian churches when you wrote Scripture. Jesus, I thank you that you are the Prince of Peace who lives inside of us. And shalom is our inheritance in Christ. The peace that passes all our understanding, that transcends and goes beyond our feelings or our circumstances. And it guards and protects our minds and hearts. God. We want to see you for who you really are. And in light of that, we want to see ourselves for who you made us to be. Jesus entered in to a season of betrayal. Knowing that he came from the Father and he's going back to the Father. Jesus knew his circumstances did not define him. People's interpretation and misunderstanding of him did not define him. He knew who he was, and it caused him to serve on a greater level, to even go lower and walk in humility and forgiveness and grace. I want you to just close your eyes right now for a moment. Most all of us in this room, we said that we've experienced peace at one point, but we also know what it's like to lose it. But I've got good news for you. Every good thing that you've experienced in God, every 
good thing. Every good gift. That sense of his love, his peace, his joy. He gave it to you forever. He gave it for you to keep. <laughs> that you get to overflow with it. Because let me tell you, he hasn't changed. He has not changed. And he has not changed his mind about you. <laughs> he still loves you. He still likes you. And he's still excited about you. And he still reigns in power and authority. Romans 8.28 is not a trite little religious phrase. Romans 8.28 is our reality. It's the inheritance of every son and daughter of God. God promises that he's working everything together for the good of those who love him or called according to his purpose. There is not one little area of your life that he's not presently working on to redeem and bring good out of. That's your father. The God of the universe is your loving papa, and he is working out everything to bring good out of it. It's who he is. <laughs> You can't lose. You can't lose. It's as if the other football team goes down and gets in the end zone and then the points are attributed to you. You can't lose. It's been rigged. It's all been rigged in your favor. Do you believe that? Every area of your life. Every area of your life, he's redeeming. Every area. There's not one bit, not one little piece of your history, your past, or anything that you're fearing in your future that God is not redeeming and has a plan to bring good out of. I bless you today to not just try to recover some feelings of positivity. Recover truth. Recover truth. Fix your eyes on the faithfulness of your Father. And there's a peace that passes all understanding that guards your mind and heart. And then Paul tells us in Romans 16 that the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Peace is not just some little side note. Peace is a weapon in the hand of God in your life to crush the enemy. But you and I don't have to sit back as victims hoping that a sovereign God will smack the devil behind, between the eyes. You and I 
get to practice warfare today, crushing the enemy by refusing to live according to natural man and circumstances. We get to live in peace. I want us to go ahead and stand. If you would just put your hands up before the Lord right now. (sighs) (laughs) For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. (laughs) That includes a pandemic and crazy crisis over 2020 and 2021. And Lord, we declare at the end of 2021, you have been good and you have been faithful. And Lord, we prophesy and we declare your word over the upcoming year of 2022. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. Woo! Thank you that you love me, you like me, you're for me, you're not against me. Nothing in all of creation can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Woo! (laughs) Oh, you're a good God. You're a good Father. Oh, you are good. You are good. Come on, I just want to wrap this up with like just two minutes of just lifting your voices to him right now. Oh, you're good. You are good. Keep going. Just a moment longer. Just a minute longer. Keep going. For from him and to him and through him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever and ever. In Christ Jesus, be glory unto him. Oh, he owes us nothing.
And yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And you will never find a person who's done you more wrong than God has ever done you right. (laughs) You will never find anyone who's done you more wrong than God has done you right. You have been blessed and chosen and loved from the beginning. I tell you, (laughs) if you are in Christ Jesus, you are in a covenant relationship with a perfect eternal Father and you cannot lose. Every defeat is only temporary, but every victory is eternal. Hallelujah. 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 Thank you, Lord. Thank you.